Tonight at the dinner table, whenever you're listening to this podcast, turn to the person next to you, ask them how they're doing, and be prepared when they give you a response that may not necessarily be, I'm okay. How will you respond to that? That changes the culture of mental health in this country. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our guest is Dr. Benjamin F. Miller, who serves as the Chief Strategy Officer for Wellbeing Trust. And Ben, as he's told us to call him, which I appreciate, is a part of the Wellbeing Trust, and that is a national foundation committed to advancing the mental, social, and spiritual health of the nation. He's also a board member for Mental Health Colorado, and that is an affiliate of Mental Health America, which Mental Health Association proudly is an affiliate as well. And Dr. Hubbard is here with us. She serves as Mental Health Association Oklahoma's Director of Outreach, Prevention, and Education, and she is really excited just as much as I am to interview Dr. Miller, so we'll get to that here in a bit. But the reason that Rebecca and I asked Ben to be on the Mental Health Download is because the Wellbeing Trust collaborated with the Kaiser Family Foundation on the Fast research brief titled The Implications of COVID-19 for Mental Health and Substance Use. So the big takeaways from that is that, you know, recent data shows that significantly higher shares of people who were sheltering in place, that's 47%, reported negative mental health effects resulting from worry or stress related to coronavirus than among those not sheltering in place, which was about 37%. And, you know, the negative mental health effects are due to social isolation. They may be particularly pronounced among older adults and households with adolescents as these groups are already at risk for depression or suicidal ideation. The second big takeaway is that the research shows that job loss is associated with increased depression, anxiety, distress, and low self-esteem, and may lead to higher rates of substance use disorder and suicide. And finally, the third big takeaway is that poor mental health due to burnout among frontline workers and increased anxiety or mental illness among those with poor physical health are also concerns. And, you know, those with mental illness and substance use disorders pre-pandemic and those newly affected will likely require mental health and substance use services. And the pandemic spotlights both existing and new barriers to accessing mental health and substance use disorder services. So with all that being said, Ben, welcome to the Mental Health Download. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me on. You know, were you at all surprised by any of these research findings? No, I'm not surprised at all. And I mean, it's it's kind of anybody that's living in the mental health or addiction community understands that these data they're probably out there every day for most folks. We just don't typically ask the questions. So yes, I, I think it's great that we were able to highlight that through the survey. I think the COVID has had a disproportionate impact on, frankly, all of us um, at different places and different points in time. But this is, to me, one of the darkest secrets that our country has not yet addressed, is that we had an epidemic around deaths of despair, deaths to drug, alcohol, and suicide way before this microbe, this virus, landed on top and shut us down. And, and while these data that Kaiser Family Foundation has are important, I think it only gives us this opportunity, this new platform for lifting up the importance of addressing mental health. And I hope we get to talk about that a little bit today. Yeah, most definitely. So I'm, I'm really going to turn things over to Rebecca because she has a big brain, honestly, <laughs> and uh, she has great questions. So Rebecca, take it away. Hi, Ben. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you Hi, for Chris. joining us today. Thank you. I, I love to hear what other states are doing. Mm -hmm. uh, we're all in this together, whether that's within our local communities, within our state or across the United States. Uh, what kind of novel approaches do you feel or see that Colorado has been taking to 
kind of mitigate the intense feelings that, that many people are experiencing that are kind of increasing those mm-hmm. suicide rates, those alcohol and drug concerns mm-hmm. of, of use disorders. What are you seeing there in Colorado that is helping to um, mitigate those issues? Well, thanks for the question, Rebecca. I think it's a it's a good one. Um, I, I I bring this. I'll bring you stories from not just Colorado. We do a lot of work across the country, so I'll give you a couple of examples here. Um, I think the first thing, which is most important and maybe most helpful for your listeners, is that it begins with the language that we use. So we immediately, and I think very similar to what most associations and organizations have done, we stopped using the term social distancing. Because that really was, it was the wrong way to describe what we needed to be doing. If anything, in a time of crisis, we need to be socially connecting. Now, so we do need to physically distance. And I think people get this now. But social distancing just sets a a tone, a tenor, um, a different culture that I don't think is helpful if people want to feel connected or feel a higher sense of belonging. So that's number one. We're careful with our language. Number two, I think one of the things that we've seen is clear leadership. And not to get all political here, because uh, this is not that podcast, but I do think that there are politics of, of leadership here that have frankly not necessarily been inspiring for instilling hope in local communities. When you get inconsistent messages or told faulty information, it's just really troubling. And for those folks who might already be experiencing anxiety or stress in their life, which all of us probably have at some point, um, It's just, it doesn't help you calm. It doesn't help you stay focused on the things that you probably should stay focused on when you're trying to manage a crisis like this. And the third thing, which I'll give you, which I think is probably the most creative um, ingenuity that I've seen, is that people have found ways to socially connect in really unique ways. And I'll just give you a personal example here because I I was telling Matt, you know, my family and I recently did a cross-country trek, which I do not recommend you do during a pandemic. It's a longer story, again, for another podcast or a book or something else. It's great. It's adventurous. Uh, But we, we found like in our neighborhood, we have really good friends that we lived on the block with and we wanted to see them. We wanted our kids to be outside talking to their friends. So we would get the kids chalk and we would draw chalk circles that gave us a radius that everybody could be in. And then everybody could sit on the street. You could talk to your friends and your colleagues. You can throw beanbags at each other. You could do whatever you wanted to do. And you still had that social cohesion, those social connections without the physical connection. And it really did make a difference. I know it seems so silly and trite, but simply being out in the street and having some sense of normalcy made everybody just kind of feel for a moment that things were okay. And that truly, I think you see things like that happening all throughout the country, whether it's people playing music from their balconies, howling at the moon at eight o'clock, whatever you want to do. I don't know what you guys do, but we like to howl at the moon in Colorado. And that's a big thing right now. No, we, we, we had an event here in Tulsa where uh, it was it was a city sponsored event and it was everybody go outside and make noise. Yeah, it was kind of a very communal experience. It was great. It's extremely cathartic. I mean, this is why kids are so loud, right? It just feels good. Most definitely. And there are those specific kind of stress relief activities and connectedness activities that we can do. Um, you mentioned job loss uh, mm-hmm. in your report, and I'm curious to know kind of the impact that you are seeing and any steps you all may be trying to implement to assist people that maybe have an increase of their mental health challenges due to job loss. Yeah, thanks for asking that, Rebecca. This to me is the most disturbing trend that we've seen within COVID. There's a, and there's a lot of disturbing trends. 
But if you look at the evidence, and I, I'm sure your listeners and you all are, are quite familiar with this, there is a, um, frankly, almost direct correlation between drug overdose deaths and unemployment. You can look at The Economist and some of the papers that they've published. For every 1% increase in unemployment, you see a 3.6 or 3.7% increase in drug overdose deaths for 100,000 people. And, that's, and it's not rocket science as to why. When people lose their job, they lose their sense of meaning, they lose their sense of hope and belonging. And so, you know, you look for that in other ways. So that that's one piece that we're, we're paying a lot of attention to. And actually, for us, we believe that it's the triple threat against our mental health and well-being. You've got economic factors, your job, losing it, keeping it. And I'll come back to that in just a second. You've got social factors, our ability to connect with others, which we've already talked briefly about. And then you've got these health-related factors, which you may already have some type of chronic disease, or if you were a person living with a mental illness, how are you maintaining your consistency and connection back to a system that was serving you? Those things are extremely disruptive, any one of them at any given point in time. So having all three hit us at once changes this nation. And, and I don't want to be overly dramatic here. I can get my radio voice going really nicely here for this if I needed to. But I do feel like if we as a nation do not pay a lot more attention to the underlying issues of mental health, it doesn't matter how much money we put into a stimulus that gives small businesses dollars. Don't get me wrong. That's important. It means that there will still be suffering at a profound level that we have not addressed. And we've got to invest in that in some way. And again, uh, I think it's it's critical, but our nation has not done that. So from our perspective, what are we doing? Well, first of all, we're talking about it. I mean, you don't get a lot of shrinks like me that talk about getting people jobs, but yet it is so essential. So how do we make sure that when, in the face of unprecedented unemployment, we can give people something to do? As the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says all the time, the antidote to loneliness and isolation is service. And there's a lot of people that are unemployed right now, and I can imagine Oklahoma, just like Colorado, that are looking for something to do. Let's use those people in a way that adds value to what's already happening with this virus. In Massachusetts, they're hiring what they call contact tracers, folks that are able to go out to test to make sure that they know who's positive for COVID. They're able to isolate, and they're able to almost in their own very special community way, keep a boundary up of who gets in and who gets out. And that's a way to protect communities from spread. You can think, what would happen if we trained a lot of folks who are unemployed to do that type of job? It gives them something to do. We keep them safe and protected, but wait for it. What happens if we train them on some basic mental health skills at the same time? How cool would that be to diversify and expand the mental health workforce while we're simultaneously tackling this virus. That's probably more than you wanted to know, but we're spending a lot of time thinking about it. I love it. That is fantastic. I am definitely all about raising mental health awareness and education. Every ounce that we put forth on mental health in the media, in our families, in our communities, in our nation, in our world, we chip away at that stigma and we help people understand the need to address mental health care mm -hmm. and um, that it's it's an integral part of who we are and we must do that. Um, I appreciate you so much and these answers you've given me. So one of the things that you said, you talked about economic, social, and health concerns and how that's kind of the trifecta. So really that comes down to provision, connection, and care, which is exactly where we're kind of cut off at the legs, to, so to speak, yeah. because we aren't able to go in and see our providers as we normally are. We aren't mm -hmm. able to maybe hug our grandparents, our mm -hmm. parents like we normally would mm -hmm. out of, the, you know, the intention of keeping everyone safe. So 
what types of um, ideas have, have you seen or have you implemented even maybe that have helped people? Like, I love your, your suggestion about the neighborhood kids, but you know, we, mm-hmm. we have Oklahoma, we have a lot of rural areas. So people maybe aren't living in neighborhoods. They're maybe mm-hmm. naturally isolated somewhat anyways, mm-hmm. and now exceptionally isolated because of the need to, to yeah. remain um, safe. What kinds of other, and I know, I know you've kind of answered this question, but I'm just kind of, especially, I'm particularly thinking of the older community, mm-hmm. Com- mm-hmm. the older community, right? Yeah. Yeah. Two, two communities that I'm thinking of, the job loss, and like you, you brilliantly address there, the job loss, and how can we kind of use that as a, as a step up on mental health mm-hmm. training, that's, you know, broadly, but also elderly, and mm-hmm. those are maybe in more rural areas. Mm-hmm. What yeah. kinds of, um, I mean, I, I would love to see large, I, I've been loving seeing some of these commercials yeah. that really talk about relationships. Mm-hmm. And how we need to maintain relationship despite the restrictions that we have. Have you seen any that you feel are particularly any efforts that you feel are particularly effective broadly, mm-hmm. or any that you have thought of or heard discussed that you think would be? And that's a whole lot of questions all wrapped up. Yeah, in one. no, it's it's. I like it. I like it a lot. It's a challenging one because I I think that when we consider how different many of our communities are and the demographics and the different populations within those communities, I can't say that there's a one size fits all here. So let me give you a couple of ideas and things that we've seen and heard. First of all, let's get to the simple ones, and these are the ones that we already know because every one of us carries around. Most of us carry around a little phone in our pocket. We have the ability to talk to people all the time. And it doesn't take much for us to stop texting and for us to pick up and make a phone call. It's a simple thing. I feel like it's almost like addition or subtraction with my kids, but it's something that is foundational to know how to have a conversation with people again. And that works for everybody. You know, up until she died, I called my grandmother every Sunday to talk to her every Sunday because it, she wouldn't have ever read an email she couldn't have cared less what a GIF was or how to tweet or any of that stuff, but she appreciated the conversation. I lived, you know, 2000 miles away and I could still talk to her every Sunday. There are people like that in your lives that you probably haven't talked to in a while that it would make their day if you just reached up, reached out and made a phone call. That sometimes is the most powerful intervention. Remember the, the, the most potent intervention for all of what ails us is love and, and we could talk you know, more about that, but it's true. When we are connected and feel like someone is paying attention to us, it, it makes us feel good. So number one, call somebody you know. Number two, and this is going to throw a lot of your listeners way off here because it's not a technology-driven solution. But you know what? We still have this thing in the service in the country called the postal service. And believe it or not, other than getting coupons for Bed Bath & Beyond, you can actually mail people letters. And so what happens when you go through your Christmas card list and you realize you haven't talked to your your Aunt Sally in six months? Write her a letter. Send somebody a thoughtful note. I have a buddy of mine in New York City who sends my kids $5 gift cards to Barnes & Noble so they can go and buy a book. It doesn't take a lot, and it means so much. These are really simple things that mean a lot. And the third, and this is a little bit more creative, and depending on your community, I don't know how you know, strapped down you guys all are in Oklahoma, but my, my mom, I keep giving personal examples because uh, uh, just, just top of mind here, but my mom turned 70 about three weeks ago. 
And it's a tough time to turn 70, just like it's a tough time to graduate high school, I guess, because you can't have those social connections and you can't do the cool things that everybody wants to do. So there was no big soiree. There was no party. What her friends did, my parents live on a cul-de-sac. Her friends did a train of cars and they all drove around honking. And then one at a time, because they were all physically distancing, they got out of their cars They put a sign in the yard or they put a gift on the front porch and they got back in their car and they waved or they would call as they were at front. And it was really small things like that that made it feel more normal, that made um, an older, you know, parent of mine, you know, feel like that she was still connected when she was missing her church or missing her community. And I think the more we can get creative with things like that, the more it's going to have a positive impact on us as a country. Now, this is the last thing I'll say here, and this is not an intervention per se. This is just me trying to read the crystal ball. I think that social contracts are forever going to be changed because of this. I think the way that we relate to one another, the way that we talk to one another, the way that we view one another, I think it's going to be different. I mean, I'm just looking at my kids who have been quarantined now for over a month, and their view of the world has changed. And I, I think there's some good in that, and there's some really concerning things in that. You know, the good things is that we we learn new skills, we learn how to relate to each other, we we learn a lot about you know, what makes the other person tick. But you also see some of those anxieties and stressors come out too. Is it clean, mom? Or can we go near them, dad? And I don't think those type of mentalities and, and psyche is going to change overnight. I think that's going to take a generation or two to work out of us, which is why I think that our ability to relate to other folks, we got to get more creative. So I, I love your question. And I would love to hear if we could had an open line right now, I'd love to hear the 25 things that are happening all across Oklahoma. So you were wisely stating that the impact of COVID on our mental health is going to go forward and particularly maybe seeing it in our kids or even continuing generations, you know, being concerned about safety what kind of tips and tricks would you give to parents to help them address that and kind of curb that impact? Yeah. Well, first of all, one of the most obvious things is that we we do need to be honest and upfront with our kids. I, I have a five-year-old and she's as intuitive as they come. And so I can't hide things from her. I don't have to tell her all the details of that, but I can be specific enough that she gets it. I think the first and most important thing is you got to talk to your kids about what's really happening and you have to lay it out there. The second thing, which is arguably um, counter to the first in some ways, is you do have to limit the amount of information that's coming into their little sponges. Um, They're soaking it all in. And just like we as adults sometimes get overwhelmed with how much information we are taking in, sometimes we just need to turn the TV, the radio, the internet, the whatever off. Have some quiet time. Play Monopoly. Do something you probably haven't done in a while because that information overload will stress everyone out. And when mom and dad are stressed out, they're not going to be good parents and explain things thoughtfully. And so it's really important that we as a collective family uh, do consider those things. And the third, which I, I know is a little bit difficult depending on where you might live or what resources you might have, is try and give your kids connection to other kids. You can't go to playgrounds right now. That's no fun, especially with the amount of energy that my kids have. But you know what? And I I have to tell you, my kids have never been video game kids at all, but they learned Minecraft over this last couple of days. I think we've just been in a bubble because we've never downloaded Minecraft. And apparently I'm like five years, 10 years too late, but that's okay. So what they do is they can get on Minecraft with their friends and they can video chat them on one screen and they can play on the other screen. 
So my kids, it's just like they're sitting in the same room together and they're talking about what they did at school. They're hanging out, playing a video game. They're doing something constructive together. And the last but not least, which builds off of that is going back to the social connection. You know, anytime that you can let your kids have the ability to have some alone time is really good. You may say, well, you know, I don't know what they're going to do, but when we're all housed together and we don't get space, not all of us benefit from not being able to get away. Actually, frankly, most of us do much better managing our relationships and, and jobs and everything else in life when we could take five minutes to ourselves. So don't be afraid if they want to go spend time alone. Don't be afraid if they're reading that book 30 minutes longer. That's actually a, probably a healthy response to a pretty challenging and unhealthy situation. You know, it's it feels like at least in some states, you know, things are starting to open up slowly, mm -hmm. some more quickly like they are here in Oklahoma, <laughs> um, a little too fast mm -hmm. to some people's liking. But I, I like to give people the magic wand, you know, so the moment that we can all look and say COVID is behind us mm -hmm. and you have a magic wand, how do you transform the mental health system or how do you hope that the mental health system is transformed after the experience that we've all gone through together as a planet? Yeah. Well, I, I will make this a magic wand question, but I actually think it's possible too. So I'll give you that as a caveat. Let, let's call out the, the data to date though. So Congress, as of this moment, has invested $425 million to SAMHSA to address issues of mental health and addiction in the COVID crisis. Just to give you some perspective there, that's 0.56%, the total amount that was set aside for the airline industry. That's 0.2% of the $185 billion that was set aside for healthcare. Okay, It is less than a half of a percent of the $2 trillion that was put forward for the COVID response. And if you don't believe me, go look these numbers up. We have not had any real investments for mental health in this country in a long time, my friends. The ongoing marginalization of mental health is appalling. So what I hope to see, and this is my magic wand, is I hope to see two things at once. First, an immediate stop the bleeding of the mental health system. Providers are closing their doors left and right. They're furloughing, they're laying off folks. It is a horrible place to be right now if you can't see patients because you just don't know where you're gonna get your revenue from. Never mind that that's grounded in a broken model. Okay, never mind that the financing for those type of scenarios aren't good. Let's make sure that we keep the system alive until we can build it anew. And that's the second part. So my crystal ball, my, excuse me, my magic wand, I'm getting metaphors mixed here, is I want $150 billion set aside from Congress to create the next generation of a mental health system in this country. If you're a history buff and you want to go back to 1963 when JFK signed our Community Mental Health Centers Act, um, that vision has never truly been realized. As much as I appreciate all the frontline clinicians that will listen to this, that work in CMHCs, as much as I so thank all the folks that have worked hard in a not-so-ideal system, it's time for us to build an actual system. There is no consistency in how we connect dots. There's no integration across platforms. It is a, a fragmented and frustrating mess. And that's not just if you're a patient, that's if you're a provider too. So what does that $150 billion do? Well, first of all, I think it actually trains up a workforce for the next generation. And I'm, I'm, I'm not very popular when I say these things, but I already said it once on here. I'll just say it more explicit. I think that we are never going to have, have enough clinicians to meet the mental health demands in our communities. I'm a psychologist. I went to school for a long time. I paid off a substantial amount of student loan debt to be where I am today. And I'm saying this to you now. I actually think the most potent frontline workforce is each other. 
And we've got to democratize that information. We've got to task shift and get that information out there so that you have people in communities that are doing robustly profound evidence-based interventions and making a difference everywhere. That's number one. That's going to take a lot of money and a lot of training. There's a there's a there's models for this. If you look at the National Health Service Corps or the Peace Corps, there are cores out there doing great work. My friend, Congressman, former Congressman Patrick Kennedy talks about Recovery Corps. Like, let's create an entire peer network of folks that are doing the core type of functions in our communities for mental health. I think that's that's one piece of that 150 billion. The second piece, I'll give you three. The second piece is that we, <laughs> I, I list things, Matt. It's just the way I organize all that's in my brain. The second piece is that we need to invest in communities by allowing communities to invest in themselves. This sounds strange, so let me give it to you. Communities of Solution is an idea that goes all the way back to the 60s and what was uh, launched the Folsom Report. Folsom Report was studying how can we actually make a big impact on communities. And it's not a, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer here. If you want to make an impact on communities, you listen to communities and have them at the table. Like, why would you design a solution for the community if that community was not even sitting there helping in the design? It's kind of like what we say these days about patients being at the table in the design. So I want to give communities money to create solutions to the problems around mental health that they've already been facing. It might be something simple like I saw in Alamosa, Colorado, of a restaurateur who saw too many of his brothers in arms in that community die from opioid overdose. And he created table toppers that go on the table every Tuesday night. So, you know, Taco Tuesday, it's talk about a Tuesday. Like, how do you go into more detail having those conversations in your community around mental health? It doesn't take a lot of money. But it does take some organization, and sometimes it takes some gathering or some prompting of folks to get them to do these things. So that would be number two. Number three is that I think we fundamentally have got to rethink what delivery looks like. I, I think, if anything, COVID has taught us that having a place where people come to is not always the best place to build. It's not always the best place to build out. It's not a bad thing to have, and I think some people want to go to places like this. But what happens if we dispel the, this notion that it's always about referrals and going someplace where you can be seen? What if it's about you reaching out and having the person come to you? Home visits and house calls are not too far a thing of the past. I mean, family docs used to do this all the time. My grandfather was a family physician in rural East Tennessee, and he used to go see his patients all the time and only held office, office hours a certain number of times a week. For the mental health community, we are not out there. I mean, we call ourselves community mental health, but are we really in the community? Sometimes we're not. And again, I'm not pointing fingers here. I'm simply saying, you ask me about what the system looks like. I think the system is more distributed into community. I think it's more integrated across all places that people show up with mental health needs. I think that we, we take that mental health workforce and we move them into schools and prisons and places that they are, but we connect them much more holistically and comprehensively than we have before. That to me feels closer to getting it right. It feels closer to having something that will be appealing for you and I and our friends when we get sick or when we have an issue or when we have a friend who needs help. That feels more, more tenable to me. Annually, we have a zero mental health symposium. We bring in all uh, like 800 to 1,000 people to listen to keynote speeches. So at that moment just now, I, that's when we would all stand up and clap <laughs> and applause. I wish there was a button that I could show you like, that would just have button. like a huge yeah. applause. Right. <laughs> that was amazing. Okay. Uh, so before we close things out, Rebecca, I want you to kind of have some closing thoughts about what Ben has shared with us today. 
Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. We do have so much in common between Colorado and Oklahoma and many of the states. Often we see our differences, but we are better together, all of us. And that's exactly what you've been showing us today, that if we work together during this crisis, Mm -hmm. after this crisis, and allow this crisis to kind of show us some potential new ways of doing things, then we will come out the other side better. We'll be doing better mental health services. We'll be be doing better mental health awareness, interventions, trainings, education, all of it, and better connected to each other. And so just generally a more robust, full life. In some ways, I feel that this has helped us to move backwards a little bit to some Mm -hmm. simplicity. So maybe we can bring that little bouquet of simplicity with us moving forward that you've mentioned in your little you know, chalk circles and your post office reminder and all of these unique and incredible ways that people can think outside of the box, but be simple and really impact others and their well-being, both on an individual basis, community basis, and even broadly policy-wise. So, so much fun to talk to you today. Very much enjoyed having you. Thank you so much. Well, and thank you, Rebecca, and thank you, Matt. Just please uh, don't tell my mom I told you that she's 70. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wait, one last thing. So at the end of every show, we ask the the guests to uh, give us a tiny bit of wisdom, last parting words, and then um, our rallying cry for our organization is go do good things. Mm -hmm. Uh, We joke that we should be saying stay and do good things. Um, But if you could just share a few parting words and say go do good things, we'll be done. Okay. So my parting words are this. Mental health is everyone's responsibility. It is not the service of one. It is not the design of just a, you know one entity. It is all about us. And how can we collectively make sure that we take care of each other? Tonight at the dinner table, whenever you're listening to this podcast, turn to the person next to you, ask them how they're doing, and be prepared when they give you a response that may not necessarily be, I'm okay. How will you respond to that? That changes the culture of mental health in this country. Go do good things.